Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is a podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. And my name is Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. The Todd Father. I just wanted to be annoying. <laughs> yeah, you were. Um, anyway, we have a great episode for you today. Today we are talking with Rich Carlgard. That's the Forbes guy, right? It is. So here is a little bit about Rich. Rich is the publisher of Forbes magazine based in Silicon Valley. He is also a renowned lecturer, pilot, and the author of four acclaimed books as well, including his latest book, which comes out next week, Late Bloomers, The Power of Patience in a World Obsessed with Early Achievement. Man, anytime that you have the word acclaimed in your bio, like you are just BA. Yes, exactly. So we're going to get into our conversation with him in a little bit. But first, we want to thank today's sponsor, who, which is Sam Massey. Sam, you're awesome. Who has provided the music for our podcast as well. So if you want to reach out to Sam for any uh, music work, whether it be for a video or a commercial that you're shooting or a radio spot, or hey, if you have a podcast and you want some music, reach out to Sam. All of his contact info will be in the show notes. And hey, before we get to the resource of the week, I also wanted to say, hey, if, if this if these podcasts, if they bring you value, if this is something that you tune into each and every week, we would just really appreciate it if, if you would leave a rating and write a review. It's literally the best way for you to be able to um, just say thank you for, for these episodes and to be able to pay us back. Um, it takes less than two minutes, and you can do that through Apple Podcasts. You can do that through Google and Android Podcasts and, and their directories as well. Take you less than two minutes, um, and and that we would be really appreciative of that. Yep. Another thing we want to let you know about is that at the beginning of next month, we are going to be at the Orange Conference Hey-o. in Atlanta. Hey-o. So if you are going to be at Orange Conference, hit us up. We would love to get together. The now, Toddfather's going to be on the prowl, hanging out with people. I was about to start rapping, but I better not. Thank God you didn't. Anyway, we have, uh, before we get into our conversation with Rich, we have our Learner's Corner Recommended Resource of the Week. And I have it this time, and it's a book that I read um, during the month of, at the beginning of March. Uh, I read this book, and it's called We Were Eight Years in Power. And it's a book by Ta-Nehisi Coates, and it is... It's a collection of essays that he wrote throughout his time during, um, right before, during, and then directly after the Obama presidency for, for, for eight years. And it's a collection of really insightful essays um, and, and articles that he wrote for The Atlantic, um, or that was that were published in The Atlantic. And, and it really takes, uh, it's an incredibly insightful book, and it really walks through a lot of the things that African-American um, or minority folks were really feeling during that presidency, where they finally there was finally representation within the White House of what uh, of 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 what could happen, or what or that the, the for for some of for, for the first time it was like we this could really happen, and so he really did a great job of documenting that through these essays. It's an unbelievable read. I, I've been wanting to read it for a while, and uh, I finally did. And so if you're wondering how I read it, uh, I so I have an interesting little method of doing it. Um, it's a book that I, so I buy almost all of the books that I read, I listen to them. And so I go to Audible and I listen. Well, this one was so good that I actually bought, I actually bought the book itself as well. And so I've, I'm going, I'm going to at some point this year, go back through and, uh, maybe not read every word, but I'll, I'll definitely read some of the high points that I can remember from, from listening to it. It's unbelievable. Um, we were eight years in power. ta Coates, go pick that up. 
It'll be in the show notes. Yeah, that's a book that I want to check out as well. I haven't read it yet, but I've read other stuff by Ta-Nehisi Coates, and it's good. Anyway. You can actually, by the way, you can go back and look at my... Um, I'll, I'll have Caleb put this in the in the show notes, but I have an entire list of everything I'm reading in 2019, so you can go and I'll, I'll send it to him so that he can put it in the show notes for you guys to see. Or you could check out what we learned our what or we learned you can in March check episode. out our, our what we learned in March episode. Yep, as well. So anyway, that's our learners' corner recommended resource of the week. Boom. Ba da ba 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 ba. That was a weak one. I'm tired. You making me work today. And here is our conversation with Rich Carlgard. Well, Rich, we're so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast to talk about your new book, Late Bloomers, today. Well, thank you, Caleb. It's a pleasure. You know, just as we get started, you know, I think everybody has heard of, you know, a young prodigy or someone like Mark Zuckerberg or someone like that who, um, you know, has come to early success. But late bloomers, you know, as you've written in your book, are a little bit more difficult to recognize. And so... Who, who are some late bloomers that people might know? Oh, sure. We'll start with the definition of late bloomer. A late bloomer isn't someone who necessarily blooms late in their life. A late bloomer is someone who blooms later than expectations, which could be differs by field. So if you take the greatest quarterback of all time, I think there would be no argument now that it would be Tom Brady. Tom Brady was the 199th player taken in the year 2000 NFL draft. That means the smartest people in the National Football League decided that there were 198 players who were better picks than Tom Brady. So Tom Brady came out of, uh, that was at age 22, the year 2000 draft. By age 24, he'd won a Super Bowl. So you say, how could a 24-year-old be considered a, a late bloomer when he'd won the pinnacle of the games, uh, you know, the, the Super Bowl in, at age 24. Well, because he bloomed later than expectations. You can look at a lot of fields like that. The actor Brian Cranston, he went into acting right out of college, didn't have any kind of a breakthrough of any significance until his mid-40s and didn't start winning awards for shows until his until his 50s. Now Brian Cranston had to support himself as a truck loader, a security guard, jobs like that on his way up. So Brian Cranston is a late bloomer. Jane Lynch, the actress, is a late bloomer. You can find them in all fields. And but the problem is today we with the early blooming pressures is that all of the early blooming traits are many Measurable. And so we tend to overvalue them because they're measurable. And that is, what kind of grades is the child getting? How are they doing on standardized tests? What kind of schools are they getting into after high school? Where was their first job? Was it a significant, you know, meaningful, recognizable employer or not? And all of those things are measurable. And the late blooming skills that the majority of us have. Uh, do not leave tracks in the snow. And so they tend to be undervalued, even though they turn out to be of great value when we bloom later on. What would you say are some of those late blooming skills that you had mentioned? Well, sure. Uh, they map very well to what employers say they want. Number one would be curiosity. 
Now, a lot of times late bloomers, and certainly in my case, we were we were later to mature. Uh, at age 25, I might have thought of myself as a as a latent late bloomer. Everybody else would have looked at me and said that guy is ragingly immature, unwilling to make the transition into adulthood. One of the great childhood attributes is curiosity. Children have more curiosity than any other age group. And when we bloom late, we tend to uh, retain more of our childhood curiosity. Now, our curiosity may get us into trouble when we're young. It may take us away from the need to focus on our studies and our SAT preps and all of that. I tell the story in my book, Late Bloomers, about how my college roommate, a guy named Bob, was one of those guys who made Phi Beta Kappa in his junior year, and he had the tremendous ability to focus. We would walk to the library after dinner every night, and he'd sit down, and he could study for four hours and then come back, take a little break, and then type up a paper um, and finish at one in the morning. And I would walk over to the library with him and sit down at a study carol. And 15 minutes later, I was fidgeting. And a half hour later, I couldn't sit at all. And I would wander over to the library and follow my curiosity, which in my case led me to reading back issues of Sports Illustrated. Now, I can guarantee you that diving into back issues of Sports Illustrated did not serve me well when it came time to sit down and take tests in college. I, I was a very, very mediocre student. But all of that study of Sports Illustrated when I was 21 years old turned out to have great utility when a dozen years later, a friend and I started a business magazine in Silicon Valley, and I decided to base a business magazine on what I'd learned from reading back issues of Sports Illustrated. I felt that most business magazines were boring. They should have peppy headlines, clever captions, and they shouldn't be afraid to call a spade a spade and punch punch CEOs in the nose if they deserved it. And that's the kind of magazine that we put out called Upside. And that was the magazine that caught the attention of people like Bill Gates get, getting me into his inner sanctum and getting four-hour interviews with him. And it caught the attention of Steve Forbes, who came out and hired me. So I went, uh, you know, in my late 30s, despite my very, very slow start in the adult world, I was now reporting directly to Steve Forbes. I attribute that all to curiosity. You get into resilience, uh, compassion. Many people think because they look at the career of Steve Jobs or people like that, it's actually something you don't want to have if you're an entrepreneur. But let's just call Steve Jobs an outlier. It turns out that if you're going to be a manager, being compassionate, not overly compassionate, not a sucker, but being compassionate about the needs of the people who whom you're leading or the needs of your customers turns out to be a great advantage. Resilience, late bloomers have more of that. Wisdom, late bloomers have more of that. So there are there are a lot of attributes that serve you really well past the age of 25. The problem is they don't serve you particularly well or people don't even recognize their value when you're making your way up through the system and all the focus is on test scores, grades, and where you went to college. I'm, I'm curious into whether it be in your own life or even just as you've observed other 
late bloomers. Are there any particular habits or decisions that these people have made um, before that they've uh, fully bloomed that have maybe helped them maximize their their time or their opportunity once they've bloomed? Well, that's a great question. I think that late bloomers or people who perceive that they might be late bloomers have to be willing to say, I'm not going to try to follow the paths of early bloomers and just do it belatedly. I really thought that when I set out to do the research that eventually became this book, Late Bloomers, that what late bloomers needed to do was follow the models of early bloomers, double down on their, on their focus, double down on their, their grit and their tenacity, and eventually they would catch up. And what you're doing as a late bloomer is you're playing on somebody else's field. You're playing by somebody else's rules. You're playing to the strengths of people who naturally bloom early, where your strengths may be in a different area. So late bloomers, the successful ones, are the ones who question whether it makes any sense at all to try to compete on the same turf. The late bloomers are the ones who follow their own paths of discovery and discover where they can really make a contribution. I think somebody is bloomed when they arrive at that intersection of their deepest innate God-given talents and their sense of passion or even mission. You know, I like the word mission better than passion because we can be passionate about ice cream. We can be passionate about a movie we've seen. Uh, mission is a passion that you'd be willing to sacrifice for. And so that intersection of where you're, you find your God-given talents and your sense of, boy, I now feel like this is worth going all in on. And I no longer feel pushed by outside expectations. I feel pulled. I feel pulled by this North Star that is speaking to me. You know, that's what you want to find as a late bloomer, not, not doubling down on the same pathways that the early bloomers have beaten you to. And what, you've, you've, what, helped ahead, you dis, what helped you distinguish between feeling the, the outer expectations of what you were talking about of, hey, this is, this is the path of the early bloomers versus you know, follow, following your own gut intuition and instinct? What helped you follow that? Well, if you look at the paths that early bloomers have followed, They've done all the right things. They've gotten good grades um, or they've, they've uh, done very well on tests. They go to the right schools or they've, they've given up all uh, sports except for the one that they're good in rather than being an all-around athlete, which itself is sort of an interesting question because it turns out that even some of the great professional athletes – resisted the temptation to concentrate on one sport and follow their own intuition and played multiple sports, um, as did Tom Brady, was a very good basketball player, for example. But uh, he, a lot of damage has been done to early bloomers. I interviewed a woman named Carol Dweck who wrote a best-selling book called Mindset in 2006, and she writes about the difference between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. A growth mindset is always learning. 
A fixed mindset is one who thinks, well, whatever got me here is what worked, and it surely will work in the future. And early bloomers are more vulnerable to falling into a fixed mindset because they were once on top of the mountain. They feel that what they did to get on top of the mountain will always keep them on top of the mountain. And that isn't true. In fact, it, it saddles people with this sort of brittleness. Carol Dweck told me that the freshman she sees at Stanford today, and you'd have to consider that somebody who gets into Stanford today with only a 3% admissions rate is, is an early bloomer. And she's, the, Carol Dweck said the students she says, sees today are exhausted and brittle. They don't want to mar their perfect records, she said. Now, that's somebody who's, if, if that person is like that at 18, they're not going to bloom much going forward. They might get off to a fast start at wherever they get their first job, and they're going to find that late bloomers pass them right and left if the late bloomers are the people who have learned how to grow, and the early bloomer is the one who thinks that what they did will always be enough. As an employer right now, particularly with um, what's now Gen Z, who is now starting to to go into college, how do you honor the late bloomers? You were just talking about these people who are in college and, and some, some of these attributes that people are seeing present in them. How do you honor the late bloomers and say, okay, I get it. Like you had this advantage and this advantage, and this helped you to be able to excel maybe in your early 20s, even into your mid, late 20s. How do you honor them, but at the same time identify that, hey, this person over here who who I might have working in the mailroom right now because this is really the only thing they're qualified for, how do you continue to, to, to help them to, to get to a spot in your organization where they can, they can really bloom? Well, uh, I'll give you an example of one company that thrives with a late bloomer strategy. I don't think they call it a late bloomer strategy. I don't think they even think of it as a late bloomer strategy, but in effect, it is that. It's Northwestern Mutual, the big life insurance giant. It's based in Milwaukee, about a $30, $35 billion a year revenue company. It's been around since 1857. And they are fully aware that somebody goes to, let's say, the Wharton School of Finance, doesn't put at the top of their list selling life insurance as their first career choice. Because selling life insurance is very hard. You have to make a lot of cold calls. At Northwestern Mutual and most of the others, there, there's no salary. It's all commission. So you have to have a lot of grit and fortitude to be able to sit down and make a lot of cold calls every day. You might make 20, 30, 40 cold calls before you even get a meeting. That will grind down most people. And it'll particularly grind down early bloomers who think that I don't deserve this. I didn't sign up for this. I'm surely capable of much more. Um, so Northwestern Mutual looks for a different kind of person and they've They've, they, they like Division three college athletes, for example, small college athletes who have dedicated themselves and proven that they can stick to a program of discipline, pursuing a path of excellence, and they're doing it for the love of the sport and the camaraderie of their teammates. And they found that um, first-generation college grads are really valuable. They they have they've demonstrated that they have a plan for their life they have tenacity and grit and so while 
society wouldn't call, let's say, a graduate of, uh, of um, the local state college or, or some lesser, some college that is not in the top quartile of the U.S. News and World Report ranking, but is in the middle or even in the bottom half, um, Northwestern Mutual thinks there's great value if that person is the first one in their generation to have gotten a college degree at all. They think that has more value and correlates to success as a life insurance salesperson than does the, the fancy degreed person from Stanford Business School, Harvard Business School, Wharton School of Finance, etc. They like military veterans. Uh, a lot of late bloomers um, are military veterans. There's a great best-selling book, um, you, you, you Ohioans would be acutely aware of it, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Um, oh, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. The story was a very good one, you know, toggling back and forth between um, Middleton, Ohio and northern Kentucky, and his mom was, the dad had run off, and the mom had serial boyfriends, and, and, and there was no role model. The only role model J.D. Vance said he had growing up was his grandmother. There was no male role model, but he went off to the Marines and suddenly had role models, and suddenly saw there was a path outside of his dysfunctional communities, and he came back with a sense of purpose. And he got through Ohio State in two and a half years while holding a couple of jobs. And then he went on to Yale Law School, where he's kind of a fish out of water. You know, poor, poor working class kid um, uh, at Yale Law School. And he writes about that honestly. But, but uh, what, a, what an amazing book. It inspired millions of people. It was a national bestseller and still makes the bestseller list. So... You know, his his path was different, but it shows the value of, of military, if not a combat veteran, at least somebody who who has Marine training or something like that. Northwestern Mutual finds very valuable. As one person told the CEO, John Schlifsky, I don't mind being rejected on a cold call. Hell, I've been shot at. And then the fourth category of late <laughs> bloomer they like is uh, the parent who has returned to the workforce after being responsible for kids. We're all political correctness aside, we're mainly talking about mothers who are returning to the workforce after having stepped aside. And they find that that, that person, while they were a, a mother or, or a dad, has picked up a lot of negotiation skills, a lot of patience, a lot of multi-processing skills, a lot of management skills, and it doesn't take a lot to transfer that all to the business environment, the skills you pick up as a parent. So they find great value in these people returning to the workforce. So there you have Division three college athletes, first-generation first grads, and it doesn't matter the quality of the or the ranking of the school, military veterans, and parents returning to the workforce. All of those categories, I would consider, at least by society's definition today, as kind of people who are late bloomers. They weren't people who starred at age 18. I'm thinking of, of all these people um, who were early bloomers, people like Lebr uh, the basketball player LeBron James, uh, the chess prodigy Bobby Fischer, all these people who just immediately came onto the scene and, and they were at the top of whatever it was that they did. But what it also seems like is there are so many of these these stories where that person who starts off so quickly, and you've talked about this a little bit, 
they they immediately um I think you said it like this. You said um, they don't bloom anymore. They they bloom once and then they're done. Is there a benefit actually to being overlooked or to um, to maybe not having that spotlight? What's what have you seen as you were doing your research in, in terms of is there actually a benefit to that to not having that um, maybe that spotlight placed on you so early? And and I'm even thinking in terms of you know going to like you mentioned earlier going to these these prestigious schools. Is there a benefit to that? Well, first of all, I want to say about the early bloomer, I have nothing against the early bloomer. I, I applaud the early bloomer. We should applaud people like LeBron James. We should uh, applaud, well, the current chess prodigy, Magnus Carlsen of Norway. Bloomed yeah, very, he's unbelievable. Yeah, bloomed very, very early. We should applaud that. We just came out with the Forbes annual list of billionaires and Kyrie Jenner, uh, made uh, is the youngest billionaire, self-made billionaire of all time. Uh, you know, arguably she did have a head start of sorts, but the name uh, and the exposure to wealth. But but she did it on her own, and we should applaud that. And not all of them will burn out, and not all of them will 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 fall victim to the fixed mindset. It's just a greater risk for them that they will. Um, the is there a virtue to blooming later? Well, sure, I would argue when I would go back to things like resilience or equanimity, what I would call equanimity. One of my people always say, Rich, you've been at Forbes now for 27 years. What a great platform to be able to go out and talk to CEOs. And it is. You know, and so they say, well, who's your, you know, who's the most impressive person you ever met? And I kind of, kind of surprise people by saying not somebody who would, you'd instantly think of a CEO. Yo, but I think of as a great leader, a transformational leader. And it was the San Francisco 49er football coach, Bill Walsh. I had asked him to be a columnist at my mag, the, the magazine Steve Forbes hired me for, Forbes ASAP. And Walsh had completed his 49er career where he won three Super Bowls and then left the team in such good shape that they won two more with essentially the same structure. And now he was back at Stanford for a couple of years. His first head coaching job of significance was at, was at Stanford. Now, Bill Walsh was such a late bloomer that it, in his late 30s, his first head coaching job was in semi-professional football. I mean, you couldn't make a comedy movie about semi-professional football that could be any funnier than, than the group of wannabes and has-beens that he had to lead at the San Jose Apaches. You're talking about bar bouncers, you know, playing linebacker. You're talking about, you know, people people who might have once had potential but never fulfilled their potential in college. That semi-professional football, they played on a junior college field, their games, and they practiced on a lumpy high school field. And and well, this is humiliating for Walsh. You got to think on some level. The year before, he'd been the running backs coach at the Oakland Raiders. He's the head coach of a semi-professional football team. Well, one day he's at practice, uh, and his practice finishes up, and it's toward the end of the season. And high school basketball practice has already started. Remember, they're practicing on a high school field, and he hears whistles, and he hears sneakers on a floor, and he walks into the gym. And he sees this high school basketball team practicing inbounding the ball against a full court press. 
you know, where the defense is trying to harass the team and trying to keep the, the team from inbounding the ball and getting the ball past midcourt. And, uh, and Walsh was observing that it's pretty easy to defeat a full-court press if you don't panic and if you've got a few plays. You can defeat it more than 90% of the time. You can inbound the ball and get it past midcourt, and, and then you're golden. And so, well, but how do you do that? Well, you do it through a series of picks and rolls, screens, things like that. And you've got to have somebody inbounding the ball who can see everybody on the court. And it instantly occurred to him in what was the greatest insight in his whole coaching career. What if you designed offensive football to look like inbounding the ball against the full court press? Well, his next job was um, offensive coordinator for the Cincinnati Bengals, working for the legendary Paul Brown, who's probably a saint in your state of Ohio. And, and Every, everything is named after Paul Brown in this state. Yeah. And Walsh had a chance to implement this. Um, he, he had a, the quarterback for the Bengals, uh, the number one quarterback, um, it was a strong arm, typical NFL quarterback, and he was injured. And the backup was one of these guys who did not have a strong arm, but he had been a really good high school basketball player. And Walsh now had his chance to test the system. Basically, the quarterback was now a point guard. And, and it worked. And the Bengals, uh, the Bengals did better than anybody expected with their, with their backup quarterback. Um, well, Walsh and Brown didn't see eye to eye on a number of issues and, and Walsh continues to bounce around and, but eventually he gets a head coaching job at, at Stanford university, his first significant head coaching job. And, and he, he does miracles of that program. And then he gets the job at the 49ers. They've been 2-12 and 12 the year before. They were playing a 14-game schedule at the time. And, um, and Walsh has a chance to draft a quarterback that nobody seems to want, even though he was successful in college. It was Joe Montana at Notre Dame. I mean, Joe Montana was not nobody. He, he was a good quarterback at Notre Dame, led him to victory at the Cotton Bowl. But the rap on Montana was that he was too skinny and that he didn't have an NFL arm. People forgot that he was a great basketball player. In fact, Jim Valvano at North Carolina State offered Montana a full-ride basketball scholarship. And, and Montana went to Notre Dame and pursued a football career instead. Well, Walsh, Walsh finally had the quarterback he wanted, and it took a couple, took a couple years. But in year three, Walsh wins the Super Bowl. Uh, with Joe Montana as quarterback. And everything in the NFL today sort of goes from the tree of Bill Walsh, that, that passing, um, getting lots of different receivers in motion. You can call what Andy Reid does at the Kansas City Chiefs today with Patrick Mahomes. I mean, Patrick Mahomes is a superior athlete to Joe Montana or practically anybody else. I call him the Steph Curry of the NFL, he's completely broken the mold, but 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 it's still the game changed. Walsh changed the game, and the game has not gone back with this idea that you could have multiple receivers in motion, and if you had a quarterback who had the calm coolness to be able to see all those receivers in motion, you could do that. Now going back to the point, why here Walsh followed his own path. I mean, he was willing to take a crap job in semi-professional football where he would have a chance to experiment rather than continue to be an assistant coach. 
He was a late bloomer. He was a brave late bloomer. He was a late bloomer because he's willing to follow his own path. And then he became one of the revered NFL coaches of all time. So you've talked about the importance of following your own path, especially as a late bloomer. And he really even for, I would say, for most people as well. What, what other advice would you give to people who might be considered late bloomers? Well, I would first give the advice to uh, uh, parents, because I think parents struggle when they have their children. Every parent today, the educated, aspirational parents today, I mean, just from functional families, um, not like J.D. Vance's family, but from functional, educated families who, who have goals and aspirations for their children. I guarantee you, as a parent myself, our kids are now 26 and 22, but you go through this process, are we disciplining them too much or not enough? Too much or not enough? Too much or not enough? Should we be tiger parents or should we be laissez-faire parents and let them go their own way? And so you have to kind of find that find that. But but the key thing is that all kids are different. Within a family, one kid might be an early bloomer, one kid might be a late bloomer. I think with the late bloomers, you say just because they're not doing well in school or not testing well doesn't mean they're flawed. You know, let's see if we can find new paths of discovery for this child. A lot of upper class or upper middle class um, educated families really make a mistake. They think that every kid should be college bound, which is part of this early blooming obsession that we have. Now, one of my college roommates went to Fuller Theological Seminary after college, and he he became a clinical psychologist, and he has a family practice with a lot of troubled teens. And oftentimes what happens is the parents will come in and they'll say, John, he's lost interest in school. He's just hanging out in the basement uh, playing computer games. He has friends that, you know, we're not sure they're good friends for him. And, and my friend, the clinical psychologist, his name is Jeff, and he said he was recounting one conversation he's having with the father of one of these troubled teenagers. And it, so Jeff met with the teen, and Jeff found out that the teen loved tuning cars. Now, I didn't know <laughs> the tuning cars today doesn't mean you're swinging a wrench in a garage. It means that you're tuning the software to try to get more horsepower out of the engine. And that's what tuning a car means today. Anyway, the kid loved tuning cars. And the parents had no idea that this kid actually had a passion. And his friends were not bad kids. They were kids who shared the same passion. And so my Friend Jeff Kennedy suggested to the dad, have you ever thought about an alternative path for your for your child? You know, maybe maybe he should get a job at a Lexus service center or something like that. Maybe a skilled trade might be a better path for him. Doesn't always have to stay a skilled tradesman, but maybe it might be the right path for him now. And maybe someday um, he'll say, now I want to go to college. I'm 26. I want to go to college. Well, the dad slaps the table and he said, my kid is going to USC. I went to USC. End of story. What a disservice that father is doing to his own son by saying the son needs to be on this path, playing on a playing field that didn't suit 
the son's skills. That, that to me, is bad parenting. The, the parent, I'm sure, thought it was good parenting, but it was bad parenting because you want to put your children in a position where they can bloom and succeed, and it won't be the same path for everyone. How do you how do how do we do that in, in the parenting world? I work with parents quite a bit, and and I, and I think that oftentimes the moment that we're that they're told that that their their dream is not what's actually reality, they they get all boogered up about that. How, how do we how do we help maybe from the other perspective? How do we help maybe kids, teenagers? I'm thinking of in particular who are are really trying to figure this out. How do we encourage them? If, if they whenever they're feeling like they're a failure um, for people listening who, who might be working in, in that world, how do we continue to encourage them and help them to see uh, maybe beyond um, maybe the beyond high school years as, as, a, as a different thing if they may not be getting um, encouragement at home? Well, first of all, I commend you for using the phrase boogered up. I love that phrase boogered up. I'm going to, I'm going to have to use boogered up more often. And as we saw earlier this week, uh, some of the, the wealthiest parents who feel boogered up go from boogered up to bribery. You know, it's all about them. So I would say the first thing that parents need to do is, is say, it's not about us. It's not about bragging rights at cocktail parties, bragging that our kid made honor roll or bragging that our kid got into an Ivy League college. It's about the kid, for gosh sakes. I think that there, there are, you think about all the places where kids need exposure to different things. They need, you'll never know what's going to really, what's, where, where the, the light's going to go off for a kid. But kids need to find, part of the process of, of moving from childhood to adolescence is that in childhood you look to your parents and you look to your family for all the social cues. And then in adolescence you look to your to your peers. Now if if the child is hanging out with clearly destructive peers, that's one thing. But if they're hanging out with peers that that aren't maybe the peers you thought that your child was going to hang out with, but but there's nothing destructive about it, you know, that's that, that needs to be encouraged. I'll use an example of, of myself. My dad was a high school athletic director. I grew up in Bismarck, North Dakota. And my dad was one of those guys who was a really good high school athlete in all the traditional sports. He was an all-state and in football. He was an all-state forward in basketball. And he was a, a very good catcher. He was given a tryout by the Chicago Cubs. So he comes... But, but he was not good, so good in any one of those that he was destined to be a Division I college athlete or go on to the pros. He was just a good all-arounder. And he came back and, and, and uh, eventually became athletic director of the public school system in my hometown of Bismarck, North Dakota. And everybody knew who he was. And, and he was a revered figure. I was the first child. And, and I kind of... Uh, kind of knew that there was this expectation that I should be, should be like, like my dad. But I remember I got a real comeuppance there when in eighth grade, the first year of tackle football then, in eighth grade, I was 5'2 and 80 pounds. 
And I just got mowed down. I went out for football. And I would get mowed down right left and quite sensibly, really. You know, I thought I became kind of um, gun shy and I wouldn't stick my nose in there. The coach would always say, stick your nose in there, Carl Gard. And, and why should I stick my nose in there when the kid I'm trying to tackle is 140 pounds? Who's setting the rules here? And even my dad, you know, who meant to do the right thing, he said, well, you just need to get hit once, and then all the fear goes away. And I'm thinking, I, I, I give myself credit for being a rational 13-year-old saying, that doesn't change the fact that the guy who that I'm trying to tackle is literally almost twice as big as me and a lot faster. And so I did, I did what was the, the, hip, the hippie world of sports back, back when I was growing up was distance running. That's where all the long hairs went and, and all the, all, we were the alternative sports world. We ran long miles. We were skinny. We didn't look like traditional athletes. And that was the crowd I started hanging around with. And, you know, uh, I think my dad kind of looked askance at that for a while. Then I began to blossom and, and then I, you know, ran in the state track meet and all that kind of stuff. And <clears throat> by the time my little brother came along and, and followed, he won the state track meet in the 800 meters and was a varsity 800 meter runner at Stanford for all four years. And and I think the whole distance running culture, people like Steve Prefontaine made it cool. And they, but they were just sort of coming into national exposure then. And um, I found my own way. You know, it had to be my own way. And my parents, they, at first they neither encouraged it, nor, but, they, but better, they didn't stand in the way. And they didn't stand in the way when I would come home so exhausted from practice that that I wouldn't eat the dinner that my mom prepared, and all I could, all I could, all I could get down was a chocolate milkshake because my stomach was so upset from running twenty quarters, uh, you know, twenty four forty intervals, something like that. But um, you know, I think you have you, your kids will find their passions, and I think parents have to listen. I was really encouraged when when someone who read this book, who's the uh, a woman who reads leads the Fuller Youth Institute out of the Fuller Theological Seminary, said after reading Late Bloomers and Early Drafts, she said, it made me want to go and hug my kids. You know, our kids, if you really believe that we are created by God in God's image, then our kids are born to do great things, but they may not be obvious things. And our job as parents is to put our kids into positions where they're going to find those things. It doesn't mean spoiling them. It doesn't mean coddling them. It means being a good parent and, and, and listening to the kid and listening for those cues about where the kid is speaking with passion and interest. And it might not be your passions and interests. And it might not, it might not be uh, something that's going to lead to straight A's in the great SAT. It might be computer games more, more, more often with, with adolescent boys. Well, you know, uh, a love of computer games doesn't necessarily mean an, a destructive addiction to computer games. It may be the way that, that the child is learning about information technology that is going to serve that child extremely well going forward, even if it's working as great today. So, Rich, one thing I want to ask 
I want to ask you about, especially um, with you being a late bloomer as well, what, what are some of either the habits or the decisions that you made, um, you know, as, as you were kind of, you know, blooming yourself that have helped you get to where you were at with Forbes today? Well, look, uh, I wasn't capable of, of, of thinking out a plan, really, um, before I bloomed. Now, I described how I spent my time wasting my time in the library when I was an undergraduate. And by the way, I, never, I don't have a graduate degree of any kind. My graduate degree, um, I like to think of as my career at Forbes, where I learned about finance and investment investments and technology and business and all of that. But I did have the sense, I will give my credit, self-credit for having the sense that even though after college, um, I had a brief career uh, at, at Runner's World magazine, which was still a very young magazine, and, but I was kind of a stoner and, and uh, a poor employee, and I got into fights with colleagues, and I left ahead of being fired after seven months and now I find myself incapable of holding a job greater than security guard, dishwasher, and temporary typist. But at least I was able, as a security guard, I was mostly able to move, maneuver myself into these positions where I'd take over from the receptionist at five o'clock in an office and then work until midnight. And after everybody had left, it gave me a lot of time to read. And I read the things that were really interesting to me. Um, not just Sports Illustrated, but, but um, discovered writers that I really liked. Uh, I love the writer Dan Jenkins, who just died last week. He was one of Sports Illustrated's great writers, and he wrote a lot of comic novels. I discovered the essayist from the 20s and 30s, H.L. Mencken, and what Mencken could do with words. I discovered a guy who would win the Nobel Prize in fiction, Saul Bellow. And it was the first serious novel that I read. And I read it while wearing a security guard's uniform in the hours between 8 o'clock and midnight, you know, sitting at a desk. So I did begin to develop my own ideas, what I really liked in, in writing. And I think that helped. There was no real plan to it. I was just following my own interests. And then finally what happened was I was a temporary typist. And I got a uh, – I was at a, a – place in Palo Alto, California called the Electric Power Research Institute. And I'd, I'd quit smoking dope and I, I would, I'd start getting fit. And I was running with some of the people at the Electric Power Research Institute. They had great trails that led right outside the front door and they had a shower. And so you, you would run during the lunch hour and then take a shower and go back to work. And on these runs, they said, Rich, what are you, uh, why are you stuck in the temporary typing pool? And I said, well, I don't know. I guess I've mismanaged my, my career. And they said, well, do you think you could do technical writing or technical editing? And I said, gee, I'd love a shot. And they gave me a shot. And all of a sudden, I did very well at it. And I took responsibility for it. Now, this is at age 26 or 7. I don't think that I was capable of taking responsibility for that at age 24. I just simply wasn't. Um, the, uh, the astronaut Scott Kelly, who spent more time in space than any American astronaut said, you know, when he was in school, all he did was look out the window. You could have held a gun to my head and I couldn't have learned anything useful. And I guess I was kind of like that. At least though, uh, in following my own nose and going to the stacks 
the library and reading back issues of Sports Illustrated and then discovering writers that I like, then when I finally had a chance, you know, to be a writer myself while I was at Forbes, I had a very clear idea of what was good writing and what was not. And, and I didn't think it was crap level journalism. <laughs> you know, I knew that there was a higher level you could play at. And I sought to skip the steps and start playing at that higher level. And I, and I had the background of reading to be able to do that. So, you know, um, I don't know if that's useful for other people, but I only want to suggest that it might be useful only if it's encouraging that sometimes, are, you know, we're learning things when we appear to be not blooming. We're learning things and adding to our library of, of, of things in our brain that will be useful one day. We're never not, as long as we're not, A, being supported by mommy and daddy, and B, falling into some dysfunctional trap like addiction or gangs or crime, as long as you're not doing something dysfunctional like that or being spoiled rotten, then we're, we are learning things. We are learning things. And I think the, what the late bloomer needs to do is what are these things that I've learned even though I've not yet bloomed to my potential? So... Just as we're moving towards wrapping up, one thing I want to ask you about is, you know, fr from your position at Forbes and even in Silicon Valley, what's on your radar right now that's either really intriguing or interesting to you right now? Well, I, th I think the greatest story in business in the five-year time frame is the acceleration of digital technology and how it's transforming more and more business models. If you live in Silicon Valley, as I do, for 50 years, we've worshipped at the altar of Moore's Law. Moore, Gordon Moore was one of the uh, early semiconductor pioneers, one of the co-founders of Intel. And he, he described just how fast uh, semiconductors were evolving and that semiconductors, what was happening at the level of the silicon chip, was the gating factor in how fast digital technology could evolve. Now you have other factors. You have kind of the think of the confluence of cloud and cloud supercomputing, new AI algorithms, 5G wireless that is now just hitting all of these things coming together at once, which is raising the, the metabolism of business. And it means that businesses really have to be on their toes today and they really have to get this digital transformation right. Really what I, what I mean by digital transformation is you have to design your company in a way that's able to collect data about your market and your customers and to derive useful insights from that data about your market, the way it's changing, and about your customers and what they really want um, before others do. Because if others get their first of these insights, they're, they're really in a position to knock you off your, your, your pedestal. And all of these Silicon Valley companies that are funded by venture capitalists, they are in the business of trying to insert themselves between you, the older business, and your customers. You know, Google doesn't want to be in the oil and gas industry. Google was, doesn't want to be in the agricultural industry. But they want to. They would love to own the customer relationships in those industries. So, the, to me, this is sort of an, a very, very interesting environment to be in, where things are are evolving so fast. And then I think about workforces and what do you have to do to be 
stay vital as a company. And here is where I think the late bloomer workforce is the thing that most companies aren't looking at and could be very valuable for them. You know, if everybody is after the same kind of employee that has gone to Stanford or MIT, they're like the first round draft choices in professional sports. You can hire that kind of employee. You're going to pay through the nose for them as sports franchises pay for the nose through for first round draft choices. But what if you can find the Tom Brady's or, or even further down the draft list, the Julian Edelman's, you know, Julian Edelman went to Kent state. Um, nobody thought that Julian Edelman who was the MVP in this most recent Super Bowl, would be, uh, would become the players become. Um, he was a quarterback at Kent state, Kent state, you know, fine school, but it certainly isn't what you would consider a Division One powerhouse in football. And and so, who are who are the equivalents of the Bradys and the Julian Edelmans or the the Brian Cranstons? You know, who didn't get a significant role in acting until he is in his middle forties? Who are those people? And don't just think you can toss them aside because they didn't. They you don't think that they're capable of of adapting to this AI driven future, they're more than capable. You know, they just, they're just, the, the markers that they set down aren't, aren't as obvious as the early bloomers, but that which they might bring to the workforce past the age of 25 may well be far more valuable. They may be your managers and leaders as opposed to the people who are able to, to code under pressure. So, I, you know, it's the higher rate of metabolism in business that to me is really interesting today. And then, you know, what, how do you set up your corporate culture? How do you set up your teams and how do you set up your workforce development to really be on top of your game? Because if anything less than being on top of your game as an organization is a prescription for future irrelevance. And then just as we're wrapping up, we always have a few questions we love to ask everybody. And the first is, what's one thing that is helping you either personally or professionally right now? One thing that's happening personally, professionally, I think the best thing you can do personally or professionally, both personal and professionally, is to get really comfortable doing public speaking. I do a lot of public speaking. It's been of enormous help in my career, and, and I do not have any native skills for public speaking. And when I first started speaking in public, I was really pretty bad. And, and, but I would encourage everybody, whether through Toastmasters or any opportunity anywhere to take it. And you might have to do 10 mediocre speeches or 20 mediocre speeches before you start getting comfortable with yourself on stage or behind a microphone. Suddenly you realize that when it's not about you, it's about the needs of the people in the audience. And then you lose all the, uh, all the uh, pressure you're putting on yourself. And once you realize it's about the people you're talking to, it frees you up. But it takes people, um, it takes people a while to get there. And a lot of people are deterred because they give a speech and they're embarrassed. Or they give a speech and there's so much anxiety about it, they start sweating or they mumble or they stutter and they go, I'm never gonna go through that again. But I don't think anything is a confidence builder and frankly gives you exposure to the people you want exposure to than learning how to speak. And I still, I do a lot of it and I still use it uh, and I still find it very valuable. That's great. 
What's what advice would you give to someone right now who is eager eager to learn? Well, I would find out. I would decide uh, who really who are people that really motivate you. Who are the mentors out there? You don't. You can have mentors without these people knowing that they're mentors for you. You can have mentors that you will never meet. That's what books are for. That's what YouTube is for. Find out the kind of people that really inspire you, and then kind of kind of try to deconstruct why it is that you are so motivated by them. What are the particular things that they do so well that you would like to do? And then figure out a path for how to do that. When when I was studying great writers, sitting behind a a desk uh, as a security guard in the evening hours, uh, reading people that I really like to read, I really tried to deconstruct what was it about these writers that made them so compelling. How did they use the words they use? How did they construct the sentences they did? One of the conclusions I made that has been very useful for me is the essential building block of all good writing is the paragraph. Now, within paragraphs, you have to have good sentences, and the sentences should be of varying lengths. Uh, you should have short sentences and, and, and mixed with longer sentences, so it doesn't become uh, boring. But one of the things I, I realized is that end every paragraph on kind of a cliffhanger that propels you to read the next paragraph. Begin paragraphs with short sentences so the reader doesn't you don't give the reader an excuse to stop reading. And I would have only, nobody ever taught me that when I was taking English courses or writing courses. I only figured that out by, by deconstructing what it was about writers that I liked across a variety of subjects. So find people that really inspire you, then figure out what makes them tick and what you can borrow from them. If you could have everyone learn one thing, and that thing could be something innocuous like learning how to cook, or it could be something more tactical, what would that one thing be? I would say that one, the one thing is psychological, and that is don't let self-doubt stop you. Now, I think popular culture does a disservice when it talks about doubt and confidence. And the popular culture will say, well, what you need to do is throw your shoulders back, puff up your chest and fake it till you make it. I mean, chutzpah and all that kind of stuff. You can talk yourself into confidence. Maybe there's some people who can do that. Now, the problem is for most people, if they do that and then they have a setback, you know, it's even worse. They're in a worse place. You know, to have your, to have your fake confidence exposed for your lack of competence is a humiliating thing. And smart people will see it. Smart people can see through fake confidence and you actually hurt your reputation more than enhance it. So society's uh, advice about confidence, I always find bad. What we need to do is figure out how to proceed in spite of our self-doubt. And that can be learned. I have a whole chapter um, called The Superpower That Is Self-Doubt, how we can use self-doubt to our advantage. First of all, you've got to learn how to see self-doubt as information. All it is is information. It's like that annoying friend that shows up and, and says, we've got a problem here. Okay, well, listen to it. Take it for what it's worth. Put it aside. Proceed anyway. Sometimes there's valuable information, valuable information in that self-doubt. Sometimes not. 
And then I think you have to learn how to say, well, what is the what is the thing that I can succeed at right now in spite of my self-doubt? What is the thing that I can do now? And you start establishing this pattern of small wins that add up. And growing confidence from the out from the inside out is an enduring kind of confidence as opposed to the, trying to fake it from the outside in. So to learn that habit of what confidence is really, is really, how you can proceed despite self-doubt, how self-doubt itself is simply just information, learn to see it as information, don't put your self-worth on the line, it's just information, you know, use it or not and proceed anyway. And then finally, what are you learning right now? Pardon me? What are you learning right now? Well, I'm learning how to uh, how to be an engaging guest on podcasts, and I'm getting <laughs> practice every day. And I, uh, and, and uh, if, boy, if we do a podcast two months from now, I'll be so much better than I was <laughs> this one. Yeah. Well, Rich, I know that people are going to want to connect with you and get your book, Late Bloomers. Where's the best place for them to go to do those things? Well, you can find Late Bloomers on Amazon. It comes out on April 16th. You can go to my, uh, I have a, uh, my personal website is richcarlgard.com. The website for the book is late bloomer, not plural, latebloomer.com. And, um, and uh, look me up. Awesome. Well, thanks again for being on the Learner's Corner today. Thanks so much, Caleb. I've learned a lot. You know, Todd, I think one of my favorite things from that conversation was the story that Rich talked about as it concerns uh, Bill Walsh. I've never heard that story before. Yeah, I so that so there's a story about Bill Walsh that that he that, that he actually I've read that story before. Um, but with that story, what it, what it really showed me me was um, that. Innovation and creativity doesn't stop whenever you whenever you become 30, 40, 50. We can be creative and be thinking um, regardless of our age. And also, here's the other thing that's really important. We are always in a place, regardless of where we're at, to be able to think and create. It doesn't matter if we're not in the big leagues, if we're not doing what what we maybe ultimately want to be doing. Gary Vaynerchuk talks about how, you know, work your 9 to 5 and then work your 7 to 12 as well meaning come home from work and, and grind, work, create, put out content, do the things that you need to do to improve your craft and also be able to, to pursue the things that, you, that you're dreaming of. And it doesn't matter how old you are. Sam Walton created Walmart when he was 40, I think 44. So go forth and do. Agreed. So if you enjoyed our conversation with Rich, you're not going to want to miss next week's conversation with Jeremy Cower. Hey, who's that? He is a photographer. He, oh my goodness. Todd, you've seen some of his photos. I have. Right? They're literally everywhere. I mean, he had he had his ones from the Gatlinburg Fire. Uh, they were published by Time Magazine. And they're amazing. And he's coming out with a book as well. And so we talked with him about his story. We talked with him about creativity. And it is a fascinating conversation. I'm, so, I'm super excited. Can it be next week already? Yeah, definitely. Anyway. The best way to make sure that you don't miss that episode is by subscribing to our podcast and whatever podcast player you use. And as Todd mentioned earlier, don't forget to leave us a rating and write a review of the podcast if we've brought you any value. Even just a little bit of value. just Or even if you just like us. Yeah, or if you just like I'm us. I'm a likable person. Or if you just like Todd 
and you don't like me or if you like me and you don't yeah like you might not i might annoy you yeah that's fine either way just leave a rating and write a review i still buy you coffee anyway with a reward also don't forget to check out uh our sponsor for this episode sam massey in the show notes and, and reach out to him for any musical needs that you may have so thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the learner's corner podcast my name is Kayla Mason. My name is not Kayla Mason. It is, in fact, Todd Hicksonball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.